0: Nazar Afzal, it's absolutely brilliant to have you on 20 Questions With. I want to start, actually, by asking you about your new book, The Race to the Top, why you wrote it and, and the thrust of it.
1: Uh, a good afternoon or good morning or good evening, whatever time people are uh, actually listening to this. Uh, uh, well, it started, look, it Genesis was generates a conversation I had with um, the former prime minister, or the former, former, former prime minister, <laughs> uh, Theresa May, when she said to me, Nazar, look, how can there be uh, structural racism in this country when you are at the top of your profession, you know, chief prosecutor, chief executive policing? I said, look, have you got a few minutes? I said, well, you know, the fact that, um, uh you know margaret thatcher was a, the first female prime minister did not extinguish misogyny or sexism did it uh and so what i wanted to do with this book the first book my first book the prosecutor was a story of victims and survivors this one is a story of also victims and survivors but these are the people at the top of their profession so people like sadiq khan uh in politics people like uh, sanjeev baskar in acting uh and um, and drama you know business leaders health leaders education leaders all of them who've reached at or near the top, and they talk about their real experiences now. Because I wanted people to understand that we haven't solved racism; uh, that it's as real as it ever has been, as I've suffered it and others have. And also to try and understand from the, the hundreds or so voices in the book what can be done differently. And so it's, it's not just misery lit, which it would have been. Um, it's also here's a, a manifesto for change. Uh, which, and also, Matt, it responds to the, the government Sewell report a year ago, which uh, said there's no such thing as racism in this world, you know? So I wanted to put some evidence out there, and that's what this book's all about.
0: But I, I want to get a sense from you, Nazir, of what you think needs to be done, and how much progress is there still to be made in Britain?
1: A significant amount of progress. Uh, we are we, 20 uh, odd years ago, if you remember, the Metropolitan Police said they were institutionally racist. I've just completed a re- review of London Fire Brigade for the Mayor of London, which I published on the 28th. November, i'm afraid we are still where we were um I, I can't go into any detail because i've published the report um but it's grim uh, the experiences of people of color are as real today as they have always been uh and just perhaps being a bit more sophisticated when i grew up matt the racists were on the street the national front were there with their skinheads attacking me spitting at me abusing me now they may not necessarily do that they do that online we all know that, but uh, but they also do it in much more sophisticated ways. So the, the answers are not to do the same old things. You know, I, there's a big industry around equality and diversity that's been created across the world, in effect. But that hasn't really changed anything because the people who have the knowledge aren't on the board. You know, they may be doing the work at the grassroots, but they're not on the board where the decisions are made. And, you know, linking back to the Fire Brigade Review, Grenfell Tower is a good example of that. You know, that building would not have burned down if the cladding was correct. And the cladding was the poor, cheapest cladding that could have been because the people who made the decision were not diverse. They were also not people in that building. They had no idea of, well, they didn't care about the people in that building. So it's important to, to have people who are impacted by your decisions, people who are diverse in thinking, diverse in the ways that, uh, of the world, in the decision making. And that's the difference between where we're at and where we're not, what, what we think we've done and what we haven't done.
0: In your memoir, The Prosecutor, you talk about your childhood. Could you give us a bit of a sense of it? You were brought up in the West Midlands, in a suburb, I think, of Birmingham, yeah. seven siblings. What was it like? What were the good bits? And it, what was the, bad it was bits? A,
1: the most loving environment in the world. I mean, at home, in my two-bed, you know, two-up, 2 you know, two-down two two thing with seven of us or eight of us, nine of us, you know. I don't know how we did it, but we did it. You know, we didn't have... Resources that we would have now, and uh, but outside the door, I was born in the shadow of St Andrew's football ground, but obviously football ground. Uh, and every time you walked out on a Saturday afternoon, well, you took your life in your own hands. You know, you literally. Uh, if, if I was running, I remember one, running away from some thugs after me, and the police stopped me because I, they thought I'd stolen something. You know, so you had nobody to go to to get help, and. A lot of people still think that's the case. You know, that's the problem with lack of confidence in policing these days is that people feel if it happened to them, it wouldn't, nothing would change. Uh, That was my experience. But once I was at home, it was fine. I I think it was a very lonely upbringing from my part because I was, I was quote unquote, bright. Uh, The rest of my family were doing their own thing. They had a family business, Uh, and I, um, I studied during the day at school. I went to a madrasa after school for Islamic school. Uh, I would be then in a library the rest of the time. We didn't have Google, did we? Um, And so. Literally, it was a very solitary life, but it was that I couldn't have asked for a better upbringing in terms of the, the family around me. Uh, but, you know, I didn't know any white people. My teacher was a white person. That's about it. I didn't have any role models. I wanted to be a lawyer, but I didn't. Have... My role models were uh, Atticus Finch, Mahatma Gandhi and Nelson Mandela, three lawyers, one fictional, one dead and the other in prison at the time. You know, so I didn't have any role models to look up to. Um, I just simply decided that that was a career I wanted to pursue because I thought these people ultimately delivered change in some way and change society. And maybe that's the way I could do that.
0: So how did you then end up studying at Birmingham
1: University? Being in Birmingham, it was relatively straightforward. Birmingham was a Russell Group University. I uh, loved my experience there. I learned so much. I learned about advocacy. I learned about the law actually was the least i learned to be frank uh but i learned you know, i stood as a student union uh, vice president I, I succeeded i remember the first time i did public speaking at Mac, i was on a table in front of about 400 people in the hustings and the table was shaking given how much i was shaking you know now i can do public speaking in front of thousands of people without worrying about it so i learned so much of the so many of the skills that i have now during that period and i yeah, you know, as i said i loved it i enjoyed it, it Uh, But as I said, I didn't even then, I didn't know if being a lawyer was what I wanted to do, but it certainly uh, gave me all the tools that I need uh, for the career that I now have. You
0: spent some time being a solicitor in Birmingham yeah, and then you moved to London and you became a crown prosecutor. Talk to us about those early years prosecuting on behalf of the state.
1: Well, there was, the, good, the good news was that we didn't have something that we have now which is the bane of all of our lives, and that's key performance indicators. Uh, so literally, Nazir could make mistakes and learn from those mistakes. Uh, literally, Nazir could try something that was way beyond his pay grade. So I was dealing with a serial killer. Two years in, you know, uh, I was dealing with most serious cases that this country can offer with four or five years' experience. But I, but we had to. People have to. People have to harken back. This was a time when the prosecution service was brand new. Uh, the police had lost their power to prosecute. So The police hated us. Uh, the public hated us because we didn't have enough government. All governments don't fund new agencies, so we weren't properly funded. You know, um, so people hated us. The police hated us. Public hated us. Defence community hated us because we took so many of their lawyers. So it was really about. Uh, but, but as I said, because of the fact that we didn't have the monitoring that we have now and the, uh, the measuring of everything that we have now, I simply was able to learn my trade and very quickly build strong relationships with very senior officers in, in organized crime and other fields. I was the first contact. For the paedophile unit in, in the late 90s, and the National Paedophile Unit. And in fact, that, there was a real moment actually, which uh, I don't think I touched on in my book, but it was um, when um, I was dealing with a case uh, involving uh, parents who were sexually abusing their children. And it was the days of camcorders, remember camcorders? Uh, and the mother, it's horrible to say this, um, and please forgive me for saying it, the mother um, filmed um, her husband raping their 18-month-old baby. And um, I went away and I had an 18-month-old child myself at the time and I hugged her closely that night. And I realised, actually, I don't have a job anymore. I have a mission, man. You know, I can't allow. This young girl had no voice. It was important to try and find her voice or give her a voice or to speak for her where she has no voice. And it, I think that was the turning point in me realising that my job wasn't just about prosecuting cases. It's about working in prevention. It's about highlighting areas that people haven't highlighted before.
0: What do you think it was about your skill set, or you as a person, you as a lawyer, that meant that you would then go on to become the chief
1: crown prosecutor for the northwest? I was I was supported by people at a time when I needed support. So, in two thousand and one, three months after 9-11, I was made the first Muslim a chief prosecutor in London. So, that's you know think about it now, brave and bold, isn't it, um, for David Callum Smith, the DPP at the time? But you know, I think I, you know I deserved it. I worked really hard. You know, it's a sort of our South Asian ethic. It's almost like a I don't know, a stereotype, isn't it? Uh, We work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. When I left CPS in 2015, Matt, I had 120 days annual leave still to take. You know, I wasn't taking leave. I was working really hard. But it then gave me... Uh, and I think you know, I had some resilience. I don't know where that comes from. It came from my family, I, I imagine, my upbringing. Um, and I was able, as I said, to cope. But at the same time, I was I was determined to focus on areas that other people hadn't focused on. Um, the areas that are hidden in plain sight. The crimes that happen in our neighbourhoods, in our communities, that nobody had been paying much attention to. And I, I, one of the things I, I hope I'm good at is listening. Uh, and that's a very uh, undervalued skill of leaders, you know. Uh, and so I, I told NGOs and survivor groups, tell me what's what we're not doing very well. And and they, to their credit, and, and a real privilege for me that they shared those thoughts. And then I said, right, I'll go away and do something about them.
0: And you became known for prosecuting cases or taking great care to make sure that cases were prosecuted when it came to domestic violence or violence generally against women and also about child protection.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, these are the areas where we were failing, as in, we still are failing. But we were absolutely appalling at it. We were rubbish. The you know 20, 30 years ago, the police would go to a house where somebody had been attacked, a woman being attacked, and just call it a domestic. Nobody was being prosecuted. You know, one in four women in this country suffer domestic abuse. One in five women in this com- country are sexually assaulted. Two women every week are killed by their partners or ex-partners. You know, three. The, the Office for National Statistics only last year said three point one, at least three point one million. British adults were sexually abused as children. That's one in 20 of us. Any room you go into in this country with more than 20 people, just have that in the back of your mind, that there is likely to be a child sexual abuse victim in that room. So these, despite the industrial nature of these behaviours, you know, the pandemic that will outlive the pandemic we've just been through, we were really shit at it. Uh, and it was therefore important to change the way we operated, to learn from the best examples that we have, to learn from survivors and victims about what needs to be, what needs to change. Uh, and, and because I had the position of authority or influence, I used it. And I, back then as well in the 2000s, uh, Matt, we had a government that listened. You know, I would be, I'd be sitting with the Home Secretary or the Attorney General, you know, on one occasion with the Prime Minister Blair, and they would listen to what I had to say about what was going wrong. And then they would say, right, okay, we'll do something about it. That that doesn't happen these days, but it certainly happened then.
0: Explain to us what it was like <clears throat> managing 800 lawyers or paralegals.
1: Well...
0: <laughs> and, and, and prosecuting, I think, what, uh, 100,000 cases a year? 100,000 cases a year? Yeah. A year?
1: yeah. Uh, I think, I mean, teams... You you build good. Te- if they didn't exist, I'd build them. Build good teams. I mean, just trying to manage one lawyer <laughs> as a lawyer myself. You know, we are, we're we're shirty lot, aren't we? We um uh, we we you know the whole idea of us is to be combative, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, you know, I had great teams around me, great managers who understood their role and kept an eye on everything. Uh, we we had funds back then, which is the real benefit that we don't have now. You know, we were properly resourced by by the Labour government uh, in the two thousands. Uh, and um, so I had enough staff. I was able to build strong relationships. I was able to lead by example. Uh, I was able to focus on these areas that we weren't doing so well. Um, but, you know, you, you, and you know, I hoped I could motivate, and inspire people. At the end of the day, I, I think I did that. So I had the good fortune of being in this role at a time when I was properly resourced to do it.
0: Tell us briefly what your role was in turning around the prosecution of the Rochdale child sex
1: ring. Yeah. Well, if people have seen the BBC film Three Girls um, with Maxine Peake, they will know if that's the case. And the actor who played me is much more handsome than I am. Um, but in that particular case, a young girl walks into a, walks into a takeaway restaurant uh, smashes it up police arrest her is in 2008 they she says that she's been sexually abused by these men there's a really rubbish police investigation two prosecutors decide can't prosecute her prosecute them because they don't believe her they think that she must be traumatized in some way she's got low-level criminality she's involved in she's from trouble background all of those all the excuses you can imagine i arrived in 2011 in the northwest of england um, at that time the times under james harding uh were, were looking at this issue but not really giving it the attention it deserves and I when I became aware of this case when well, I said I believe her you know and uh, I decided for the first time in my career to overturn the original decision that had been taken by others and so brought the prosecution in May 2012 uh nine men were convicted of the abuse of 47 girls and you know and it literally opened a massive hornet's nest because you know I spent all of that month Matt explained to government, uh, Prime Minister, then Cameron, for example, uh, what was going on, uh, talking to the police, talking to every agency to understand that we've left behind hundreds, if not thousands of young girls in this country, left them behind, ignored them, not listened to them, uh, treated them with contempt. And that was the reason why these men were able to take advantage of them. So it led to seismic change, not just in the way we, we dealt with cases, but also encouraging more victims to come forward. Uh, in, in a period of four years, we went from being absolutely rubbish in 2011. Uh, by 2015, when I left prosecution, we had the highest conviction rate for child sexual abuse in our history. And that, and that, a large part, there's a personal cost to that, which I think I didn't doesn't show in the BBC film, but it is in my book. And that's when the far right came for me because I damaged their narrative. Matt, the, the, you know, the ethnicity of the perpetrators was all they were concerned concerned about, and they they thought that because a brown person that prosecuted these brown people that that damaged their narrative and so they came for me they invented fake news and told people that I had not prosecuted these guys and despite the fact it's in Hansard and everybody knew it people believed it and suddenly I had far right thugs outside my front door I had uh, a panic alarm to be placed in my house to protect me and my children from attacks. Um, I got 17,000 letters, including letters containing feces and other matter, uh, calling for me to be sacked and deported. I you know, was threatened, I was abused, uh, my, people around me were. And if it wasn't for my networks and my support, I would not have survived that. But also... For my then boss, somebody called Keir Starmer, because uh, realising what was happening to me, Keir told the rest of the organisation, Nazir no longer does uh, meetings at 3pm because he wants to do the school run. Nazir no longer goes on overnight conferences because he needs to be at home uh, to provide protection to his family. Uh, and, you know, had it not been for that and, and the support of the rest of my, my colleagues and also my family and others, I literally would have given up because despite having got, got every decision right in that case, I was the target of, of far-right, thuggery and uh, and it came very close to destroying me.
0: Can you help us understand where race, where prejudice, where discrimination, where the fear of being called racist, all these things fit in to what we've what we've seen and read about grooming gangs over the last however many years?
1: Yeah well I always contextualize these things and I'll say it again two-thirds of all sexual abuse of children happens in the family home. 84% of offenders are British white men um, the second largest group of victims you'll find online. The third largest group you'll find institutions, BBC, places of worship, sports clubs, etc. Then you have street grooming. Street grooming it has thousands of victims, but it's the smallest by by number. Uh, yet the one that gets all the attention. So, but I understand why people want to ask about it. There were issues for me. There were issues about people thinking. I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I believe it was incompetence. People thought, "Hang on a minute, if we prosecute these guys." Um, how will that be perceived by the community? Rather than asking the community how they would perceive it, i.e., get these bastards... That's what they would say. 99%, 99.99% of, of BME communities are, are law abiding. Uh, rather than asking them, they just assumed that this would be too difficult and didn't bother dealing with it. Uh, and link again to what I said about the victims being from troubled backgrounds. Or somehow they were being treated with contempt too. So there was an issue around a lack of understanding of the communities or assumptions being made about what the communities think without proper engagement with them. Uh, but it has to be said disproportionately when it comes to street grooming of the type that I've just reflected upon uh british pakistani and british asian men are more involved than they should be proportionately to their place in the community and, and there are lots of issues and lots of reasons why that is and i keep asking the government this government to research it carry out the home, home office you remember two or three years ago did some research and said it isn't really a problem just it isn't that bad um but you know people still think it is so let's have some proper uh, research in this field and uh, let's find out the truth rather than just make it up based on one or two cases What's it like
0: dealing with really, really extreme cases, with, with acts of terrible violence, terrible sexual violence,
1: yeah.
0: the abuse of children? How do you process yourself as a, as a, as a human being?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's strange. I had this conversation with my youngest son yesterday, who's in, now in his early 20s, and he asked me the same question. And I hadn't thought about it for a long time. I think yeah, you know, if you look at my, if you read my memoir, at the age of eight, uh, my eight-year-old cousin dies in my arms, and I'm carrying her for four hours on a ferry back into England. Um, at fourteen, my uncle was murdered by the IRA. I've been battered and bruised. Three men had used my head as a football when I was in my teens. Uh, racists. Uh, you know, I've suffered a lot, I think, or experienced a lot. I think that, I think, has had an impact. I have no doubt on my ability to deal with these cases. But you have to be professional. It's difficult. I mean, I'm, I've cried in courtrooms. I've tried not to show it. Um, I've cried in my office. I've cried um, when listening to people's stories. Just just recently, six months ago, uh, I got an email from somebody from in relation to a case I dealt with 10 years ago. And she said, Dear Mr. Afzal, you won't remember me. I was one of the victims of Stuart Hall. Uh, and you prosecuted that. And as a result of that, she now says, this is her email. I now have terminal cancer. I only have a few weeks to live. And I wanted you to know that my life began when you prosecuted it. And I cried for about half a day thinking, how do I respond to that? How was how, do You know, thank you. It's not good enough to say thank you. So I reached out to her, sent her my number, and we spoke, and she's passed away now. And and it strikes me that that's why I do what I do, or that's why I've always done what I've done, is that because you can save one person's life at a time, it's worth doing it. And, And that's what keeps me going. Apart from being
0: assiduous in prosecuting people, how do we as a society make things better? How, how do we as a society cut down and, and ultimately eliminate, we all hope, violence against women? Let's take violence yeah. against women. What do yeah. we do? What, what do? we do? Is it about schooling?
1: Is it about parenting?
0: Is it, is it about politics? What's it about?
1: It's all of those things what drives it we, we, just dealing with the symptoms I are mean, there's a terrible violence it does not fix the problem we're just simply deferring the, the fixing it what causes it what causes it misogyny ha- hatred of women you know, time and time again, uh, that's what causes it. The ability to control, coercive somebody is because you hate them. So tackling misogyny, tackling sexism, tackling the core reasons why this is what needs to happen. Working with men. We, you know, when Sarah Everard was med- murdered by that by that police officer. What did the government do? More street lighting. Yeah. All right. So now you can see who's about to kill you. Rather than let's do what. Well, what do we need to do with men? What do men have to do differently? That's what we need to focus on. And education is key to that, absolutely. You know, when you're born, uh, Matt, what, what do you hate? You hate broccoli, maybe, you know? you don't, There's not a lot you hate. You learn hate, be, your hateful behaviour. So you can learn the opposite of that, which is respectful behaviour. You can learn anti-misogyny, anti-racism. Uh, and we need to do much more of that in schools and, and early in early life, because the, er, the earlier you do that, the more impactful it, it will have. But also you've got to be much... So you've got the politics, which is about... Uh, legislation. We tried to get um, misogyny hate crime on the statute books last year, and I got um, people like Gary Neville and, and Jason Manford and others to write a letter, uh, which the ministers say please put this on the statute book. And the government, I said, you know what I say to everyone, they didn't listen, uh, and so we we need to legislate. We need to change the way we think about these crimes. We need to work with men. I tried. In 2016, it's, I still laugh about it. I still can't believe it. I tried to, organize. You know, remember there was a big spur of million man marches in America, you know, uh, on all sorts of issues. And I tried to get a million man march in the UK on this issue, men against violence against women. I got 52 signups. So I'm 999,948 short. So if there are people listening to this, please come and reach out to me. Now, we need to do much more with men and boys. That's how we fix the problem with women and girls. What do you think racism is about? It's power. Power, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. It's people just don't want you. you. You've got a prime minister who now, you know, I celebrate the fact that we have a prime minister that's brown. And, uh, uh, but, you know, he's a billionaire, you know. Um, uh, I'm, you know I'm, I don't want to prime well, minister, not- by the way.
0: Not not quite. It's well not, not quite.
1: Not quite. I, I, uh, yeah. I, think,
0: I think probably most of his wealth might be his wife's,
1: but perhaps but he has access <laughs> to those funds if he wants them. My point is that wealth actually is a bit of a is a great level here. you know. Um so that's one one way we can tackle racism is might make everybody rich. But <laughs> that's not gonna happen, is it? Um but I, th- I think um you, you know the what can I say? What, why does it happen? It's because people want to put you in your box. You know, I was talking to a very senior black leader uh, recently, and he told me that if I fail once, I'm done. Uh, it, it, literally, we can't fail once. Yet Big Sam can be reappointed as a, a manager of another club day in day out. You know, no disrespect to Big Sam Allardyce, uh, but you know, there. Yeah, you know, if you're you know, no disrespect to you either, Matt. But you know, uh, we have plenty of experience of white men who, who apparently. What's that man's name? Gavin Williamson, right? There's a whole chapter in my book talking about we all know a man called Gavin. And I'm only talking about Gavin Williamson, but we all know a man who basically cannot fail. He'll be if he fails, he gets promoted, gets a knighthood, gets moved on, you know, to some, some something important. But as a black or an Asian man, a woman or girl, whatever, I can point to hundreds of experiences of people who that's the last you hear of them. And that can't be right. I would just give you the counterexample,
0: the recent counterexample of a certain Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, yeah. who is herself British Asian, but was reappointed within a week to yeah, being right. Home Secretary after losing her job.
1: Yeah, but yeah, you know, there's yeah, you have to wonder, you know, have to wonder what she's. Well, I always it's politics. You know, that at the end of the day, that will probably destroy uh, the current Prime Minister, his association with people who quite frankly uh, don't do him and won't do him any, any favors.
0: We'll come back to the government in a moment, but first of all, has the racism that you've experienced in your life? that the violent racism you experienced as a boy, but racism that you may have experienced as an adult as well, has that impacted on your sense of identity or have you not allowed that to happen? Do you feel as yeah. British as you
1: should feel? Oh, you know, I, I was born British. I'm proud of the country I'm you know, in. My, pa- my parents, my father in particular, worked for the British Army in India and Cyprus and Pakistan. You know, so he's always been really committed to this country. My mother, you know, she always called Tony Blair Teddy Bear. You know, she was always, um, uh, God bless them both. You know, they they, they love this country. They came to this country to give me the opportunities that I would have not had in the northwest of Pakistan. And they're absolutely right about that. So it's got nothing to do with my love of the country. I'm now Chancellor of Massachusetts University. And when I talk to students, I talk to them about how if you don't define yourself, somebody else will define you. So, you know, that's my, that's my, always been my motto. Don't let somebody else pigeonhole me. Uh, you know, I remember being in uh, New York 10, years, 15 years ago with um, people you'll know, I won't mention them. Uh, I was being introduced to people as the Muslim prosecutor that prosecutes Muslims. And I literally, I lost it. They probably won't invite me back anymore. But uh, I said, no, that's what you read about. But, you know, the, so don't let somebody else define you. You know, and I, I've, I've stuck to that all my life. You know, I won't be pigeonholed. I won't allow people to say I'm um, this, that and the other. I will make my own bed and I'll lie in it. You're
0: free with your opinions on Twitter. I mean, you express yeah. yourself politically, and we've now had conservatives in government for twelve years. Initially, with the Liberal Democrats. Yeah. Very recently, we had three prime ministers within two months. Yeah. There was a sense of chaos. Where do you think we are now with this government under Rishi Sunak?
1: In the depth, I mean, we, I'm old enough to see what happened to the last Conservative government under Major. Everything that could go wrong was going wrong. You know, the sleaze, the corruption, the lack of leadership. All, that's exactly where we are now. Uh, we're in the death throes of this government. The sad thing is that we need not the exact opposite of that now. You know, we are going through the worst cost of living crisis that many of us have known. Uh, people are accessing food banks and, and looking for warm banks and uh, can't feed themselves. And uh, it is distressing. I'm patron of nine different charities, all women-led, and all of them are just struggling to keep going uh, and but if they didn't go keep going you know how many other people would be suffering so uh we need a strong government this time one that is focused on its on its people and its citizens rather than on itself and it's like it's just it's it's eating itself up this government uh, and and the, you know i, I said about Suella braverman that she was the worst i've known 10 attorney generals she was the worst attorney general i've ever had the I was going to say pleasure, but, you know, uh, I've ever known. Uh, and she's now the worst home secretary I've ever known. And, I, and I've known 10 of them as well. Uh, you know, this is not a government of all the talents. You know, this is a government of little talent. Uh, and uh, they're just moving the chairs around the, on the Titanic, aren't they? Bringing this person in, taking this person out. And we're the lot. La- we, uh, hey, you know, I, I don't know if you've spoken to people abroad, by the way, Matt, but I do all the time. And we're the laughingstock. When I was in Rome recently to speak at an international conference, they were sorry for me. No, I, I'm really sorry. I'm really, really sorry. I said, don't be sorry. You know, I, 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 we were great. The Italians were sorry for us, right? Um, and, you know, when it, when Brexit was happening and all that shenanigans about whether when we were going to leave, I was in Pakistan doing some work for the UK government on rule of law over there, and they, they were... They were laughing at us. We sent a couple of people over there to help them do in their par, you know, train their parliamentary MPs, and the parliamentary MPs were saying, "Sort yourself out and then come back to us." You know, <laughs> um, so we're we are literally the laughing stock of the world. You know, I, when I saw Rishi was at um, uh, COP uh, twenty seven, and uh, you know that when he was move, running out of the room, there were people sniggering as he was running out of the room. That's not the country I want. That's not the country that I'm part of. That's not the country that my children want to be part of. You know, we, we need to be bold, courageous, strong. The Britain, the Great Britain that I have known and loved all my life. And, and I'm afraid this government doesn't give us that.
0: What do you think Keir Starmer would be like as a prime minister?
1: Well, I, I've, I've known Keir. i worked for Keir for five years. Oh, I, you know, I, I think there are issues with Keir. Keir, Keir needs to set out the vision for the people so they know what the vision is rather than just simply responding to the government. And uh, I, I'm pl- clear that is, there, there is a vision. He was a great leader for me. As I said earlier on, he was immensely supportive of the people around him. He wanted to focus on those areas where the citizen was most affected and most impacted. He led us at a time when we were moving from conservative, Labour government to Conservative government. He was able to work across party and build consensus, which is what we need. You know, and he was strong, you know, and we need strong leadership as well. You know, he needs to stop being loyally, you know, I've, I've said this to him personally, myself, uh, you know, he, he's a human being. He's an Arsenal fan. I forgive him for that. But, you know, uh, we, need, we need to see the more human side of him and he needs to set that out. Uh, but he also has a really good team around him. When people like Yvette Cooper and others are there, you know, it's not just about and it shouldn't just be about one person.
0: What do you spend most of your professional time doing at the moment, it?
1: I'm very fortunate. I'm very privileged. Yeah, you a know, chair of the Catholic Church is safeguarding, regulator. So I work with the bishops and the cardinal and and the church more, and survivors to make sure that the church is as safe a safer place as it can be for for adherents, but also hostile. So, little little brown Muslim boy here uh, is the regulator of the Catholic Church. I'm also uh, Chancellor of Mass University, which is an immense privilege. You know, forty four thousand students, thirteen thousand staff, twenty five Nobel Prizes. You know, uh, and we're coming up to our bicentenary in 2024. So, reach out to all our alumni. Please get in touch. We need you uh, more so than ever before. Uh, I've just completed my review of London Fire Brigade. Uh, for the Mayor of London and for the commission of the of the Fire Brigade, which unfortunately is relatively grim reading, but I'll publish that at the end of the month. Uh, and uh, book two is out there. I'm thinking about book three, uh, which I can't tell you about at the moment. Um, I'm heavily involved in, in, in all sorts of engagements, patron of nine different charities. Yeah, I'll be honest with you, I haven't stopped. I don't want to stop. I'm absolutely honoured to be doing the stuff that I'm doing, uh, and uh, I'll keep doing it as long as I can.
0: Okay, so give us some idea of your passions outside of work.
1: I love film, uh, although I have not been to the cinema for a long, long while. I'm looking forward to Black Panther Wakanda Forever, uh, which uh, yeah, may be the first film i got to see in the cinema for a long, long time. I-, I love music more than anything else. I did Desert Island Discs uh, last year uh, and was able to share uh, and subject you all uh, to my tastes, uh, which could be as diverse as The House of Pain and Kate Bush. Uh, and, uh, and I want people to... Uh, literally, that's what... I- my greatest love, uh, creatively. Uh, my, my children, thankfully, uh, have learnt instruments themselves. I never really learnt one myself. But uh, there won't be a day going by or an hour going by where I'm not listening to some music. Uh, and I think my ultimate pleasure is my my children. You know, I have four, four kids, uh, Marina, 26, my eldest daughter, and three boys, Sean. Samir and Kabir and they they keep me absolutely grounded, uh, and they uh, they fill me with joy every day. And I'm so fortunate and so grateful to them, and to my wife, and everybody else around me who have uh, kept me sane. Do
0: you have any special skills, surprising skills that we might not know of?
1: Uh, I was a DJ, so back you know, it may not it's in the, my memoir, but when I was prosecuting by day, <laughs> I was DJing by night, and I'd be doing DJ house, garage, jungle, uh, a bit of hip hop, uh, and. Uh, With my vinyl, it's harder these days with digital. I I don't know how I'd start, but, uh, you know, I I still can do that if people are available for bar mitzvahs and Christmas uh, and birthdays. Uh, So I can still do DJing, uh, and I I thoroughly love that skill. Perhaps people don't know about me. And uh, the other thing I guess you know is I'm very good at engaging with people where people perhaps haven't been spoken to before. So if you've got a problem with somebody that you think you haven't reached out to, for some reason... They want to talk to me and they're happy to talk to me. I was in a, a bar with or not, a meeting with them um, above a bar with young men wearing bandanas across their faces, talking about knife crime, you know, and they wouldn't have spoken to anybody else, apparently. And um, I didn't carry a risk assessment. Uh, I'm still here. I'm still alive. Uh, but I learned so much from that conversation. So I, I feel I love people. I, I, miss this. I missed this. Uh, I've missed through COVID the ability to talk to people.
0: Are you sociable as well in terms of a social yeah. life? Do you, yeah. do, you, do, do you host people? Do you go out to parties? Are you, no. do, do you
1: cook? Uh, I love cooking. Uh, I'm vegetarian and have been for 44 of my years. Uh, and uh, so I love cooking. Uh, but uh, I, I, you know, I, gave, I made a sacrifice. If you ask me, I made a very conscious decision about 20 years ago that the only two things that I need to focus on are my work and my family. And so I have lots of acquaintances and I I go to, I go out a lot, but they're events. So I'm hosting an event or attending a dinner or speaking at some event. I do a lot of of those often to raise money for the charities I'm part of, but I I don't like going out. I I don't have, I'll be honest with you. I don't have many friends. I have lots of acquaintances, but that's a personal decision. Uh, How else am I going? I'm going to let you down. If I'm, if you're my friend, yeah, I'm going to be focusing on my family. I'm going to focus focusing on the things I need to do, and I won't see you very often. But the friends I do have have stuck with well, me mean, for 20, 30 years. You know, they may only hear from me once a year, but it's hopefully a meaningful once.
0: I invited you to the cricket once, and I hope to do so again. Yeah, said,
1: uh, look, I'd love to come. And I, I, I've loved. I used to play for the Warwickshire youth team five hundred years ago. I, I love cricket, and I love to watch cricket. I just don't get the time. to I'm. I'm. I, you know, literally. I'm. I don't know what it is. Maybe I just can't sit still. And the fact you've sat still for 45, 45 minutes with you right now, is, a, for me, is a big tick in the box.
0: I want to f- finish with a serious question just briefly. But how concerned are you about the cuts that we've seen in our judicial system? What, what sort of impact has that had? Is that having? Will that have?
1: It's a perfect storm. Um, I, I said earlier on, we were making real progress, breaking records, being really good at what we were doing uh, 10 years ago. And now we are in the, in the pits. You know, I'm not afraid to say we're broken. Uh, the police service, we lost. Hard, no, no. People always talk about the numbers, 21,000 police officers, 24,000 civilian staff. That's more than half a million years of experience we lost. So when the government talking about bringing 20,000 officers in, that's 20,000 with zero experience each coming in. You know, uh, it'll be a decade or more before we have the experience back. Uh, similarly, our courts, 70,000 case backlog. If you're the victim of a crime or even a suspect of a crime, it could be two, three, four years before that trial happens. Uh, if it ends up being known to trial, that's broken. Probation services are broken. Our prison system is full. You know, it, is, it fills me with dread. You know, I'm, I'm so glad I'm not in, involved in it. But I, as I say, I'm afraid that we have a broken system and there is no getting away from it unless there's some real term, real investment. Bringing back perhaps some of our experienced police officers and prosecutors, not me, by the way, um, you know, opening up more courtrooms, bringing back retired judges. We're not going to get back on the front foot again. And also because we're in a recession and history tells us this crime will go up there'll be more victims at a time when we have little capacity and little experience to deal with it.
0: Because we've talked about some difficult things, I'm just going to say there is help out there for people. And if you want to reach out, if you've experienced something really challenging, you can talk to the Samaritans, for example, 116123, if you're in the United Kingdom. Nazar Afzal, it's been brilliant to have you answer my 20 questions. Thank you so much for giving us your time. You're welcome, man.